I want to talk a little bit about Christian formation and Christian community. The book that Michael showed you, an introduction to Christian spiritual formation. I mean, the language, you know, we didn't, uh, that, it's fairly new term, well, it's new to, to some groups. Um, it's been around for a long time. I don't want to get into, get into the history of the term formation. Paul actually uses it um, when he says, I wish that you were formed. Um, that, um, and, um, but the, um, in terms of history of Christian approaches to Christian growth, um, we, we might call the, the broad term growing as a Christian or something like that. And if you think of history, my own sense of the history of this term, I remember there was some where it was go to church, become a Christian, and then find a church. Just go to church. Your growth will happen there. And, and that was what I, you know, some learned it that way. Um, then... Um, there was also become a Christian, and now that you're a Christian, here's some do's and don'ts. And usually the don'ts were more important than the do's. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but there was that, I, I mean, some of you, those of you who are laughing know what that means. You know, we've experienced some of that. Um, that uh, th this is a sense of this is what, you, what happens after you become a Christian, whatever that means. Then um, there is... There was the, the time when, um, you know, what you do after you become a Christian, well, the next thing you need to do is you need to have the big experience, um, the second blessing, you know, baptism in the spirit or entire sanctification or in a, in a, in a, uh, in a more contemplative, you know, maybe we're talking about infused contemplation or whatever it might be, there's that experience. You've got to get that experience somehow. And so that's uh, another thing. Get the big experience. Um, another one um, in, in more like reform circles or something, it was accept your forgiveness. What do you do when you become a Christian? You recognize that you're a, uh, that you're a saved sinner. And you thank God that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for you. And because of that, you're accepted. And no, you'll never become perfect. That's okay. Just accept that. Live in the middle of it and receive your forgiveness. Receive that kind of sense of, of welcome and acceptance by God. And that's it. Can you just do that much? Um, then, um, and, and there's the Keswick's. Anyone ever heard of Keswick? All right, yay. Um, the, in the Keswick's, um, this is a group in England that started in a, in a particular, they had lake cabins and, and you had these conferences. And it was all about the abundant life. Um, and in that, in that environment, you, um, you claim, uh, you, know, you, you surrender entirely and you receive and you trust. Uh, and it's not necessarily based on a particular experience, but it's a way that you claim the abundant life. Um, I now am living. Um, an abundant Christian life, and so you claim that. Um, people like um, Hannah Woodall Smith and um, others would you know, talk about this kind of thing. And then, um, then there came a time um, when Richard Foster came around and he wrote this book called Celebra The uh, Celebration of Disciplines. And there became this kind of world where, um, oh wow, you know, I can practice these disciplines. And, and it's not just a matter of me accepting my forgiveness. Or There's actually means of grace. 
and we can celebrate these means of grace and by using fasting or simplicity. You know, we, I could actually use them as a vehicle toward growth rather than just let go and let God or rather than accepting forgiveness or rather than having these big lists of do's and don'ts. I realize that I can take these disciplines and they can be vehicles through which I can grow. Well, Evan was great at that. Um, and I happened to be smart enough and a people pleaser enough and you know all these things that, uh, yeah, I did the disciplines. And not only that, but I could make sure that uh, I was really good at all the disciplines and you were probably not so good at them. And because of that, you really weren't quite as good a Christian as I was. Um, and if you're doing these disciplines and those disciplines, I mean, I do centering prayer, you know. And so there's this kind of thing that goes on. I mean, you know it, uh, Lexio Divina. I don't even know the word, you know. Um, so it, it ends up either a way of making yourself um, a prideful Pharisee or of saying, man, I tried fasting and I tried fasting and it just doesn't work. I must be a terrible Christian. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we, we flagellate ourselves or we put ourselves on pedestals, you know, or the disciplines just become, um, they can be something really positive. They can also be something really dangerous. And that's true with all of these approaches to Christian growth. And so... Um, Jim Wilhoyd and I, um, Jim Wilhoyd and I wrote um, a book together, and then we're writing this article together. Um, it is not published. You are now going to hear things that you should probably um, not publish. Because <laughs> Jim and I, have, we're, we're writing the article, but it's not written yet. Um, but Jim came up with this acronym for wisdom that I thought, oh, this is really, really good. And so we're, he, we're using his acronym, um, but I think it's really ex exceptionally well, is a wisdom approach to Christian spiritual formation. And so I want to kind of summarize this idea of um, wisdom. And, um, oh, if I'm going to do that, I need my notes. You now have the unpublished version of the, of the article right here. Um, so what I want to say, um, the idea is that, um, is that the term wisdom, I think, um, gave us a way of looking at the essential uh, uh, elements of Christian spiritual formation. Um, like, if I were to say, what is spiritual formation about and what's essential to it. These, this is it, and the, uh, the acronym WISDOM works really well. So, um, we start with um, S. Scripture, and, and I, obviously I'm not gonna start with the W, you'll see why. Um, but scripture, salvation, and spirit. Um, scripture, Christian spiritual formation is grounded in our union with Christ in salvation, shaped by the scriptures, and responsive to the spirit. We have to begin there. I wish I could begin with W, but I'm gonna end with W. Um, it would have been nicer, but, um, but no, I think the grounding of our faith um, and our formation has to be the gospel of salvation, you know, wrought through Christ, um, and the scriptures that tell us what the aim of formation is, and the scriptures that are a primary means of formation themselves. 
Um, and then the work of the Holy Spirit. The church was born. I mean, it's lots of discussions you can talk about. You know, it's the followers of Jesus or just the people of God, even in the Old Testament, or these things. To me, Evan Howard's arrogant opinion is that the Christian church was born when the Holy Spirit fell in the book of Acts. Um, this is when you begin to have the church. In Acts chapter 2, they shared things. In Acts chapter 4, they shared things. And then as Michael and I were talking the other day, Acts chapter 5 and 6, you have conflict already. Um, <clears throat> so the church is never perfect, but it was born with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who speaks through the church to the church so that we might become the church. Community and formation already from the very beginning. So, um, so a Christian spiritual formation is not Christian. I mean, it's fine. I mean, centering prayer is nice. I like it. Um, my wife likes it even better. Um, but um, if it's not rooted in scripture, if it's not connected to the salvation um, story of Christ, if it is not rooted in the reality of the Holy, presence of the Holy Spirit, it's not Christian spiritual formation. Make sense? Okay. Hey, I heard that, amen, amen. Then, okay, let's just see if we can do this. Um, just take the right arrow. Yeah. Yay, look at that. <clears throat> Intentionality. I have, it, it is one thing, I, I, I love the way Dallas Willard used to talk about this. Um, Dallas Willard, someone would, uh, um, he would ask someone, you know, um, do you want to sin? And they would answer. Then he would look at them and he'd have this little smile and say, how do you intend not to sin? How do you intend not to sin? I mean, that's, that's such a, what did you think when I immediately told you that? <laughs> yes, and it was. Because we, we think that we don't want to sin. But we don't, do you have a plan not to sin? How are you planning not to sin? That's what intention is about. Um, and Dallas Willard, who is a Husserl scholar, knows all about intention. Um, so uh, it's, it's a kind of a fascinating thing. Um, we squirm at these moments because I think our culture does not think about intention. Um, I mean, this is really where I think it's, it's kind of significant. Intention is more important than we might think. It's the bridge between thought and action. So before, you know, um, yeah, before I do something, I intend to do that. And it's that intention. Um, I think this is what baptism is all about, at least as an adult. But I mean, even, even when you are baptizing your child, um, there is a willing, concrete step into newness. It is that moment of saying, yes, my life will be different. Nowadays, um, I think, where, who are we talking to? Can't remember, we were talking to someone who was younger, and, and I, I realized tattoos serve the same function quite often. I mean, those of you who, um, I, you guys can tell me, I mean, because you know the tattoo crowd more than I do. Uh, I, I have this sense that getting a tattoo is a way of saying, yes, this is what I want to be. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I, there is something baptismal about getting a tattoo. Uh, you know, that's an interesting kind of thing. Um, new habits are not easily established without solid intention. I can give you the psychological research for that. Oh, then there it is. There's the tattoo. Um, there's a bunch of psychological research that will tell you that intention makes habits stronger. If you initiate, and that's what, I mean, this is what resolutions are. You ever heard of the New Year's resolution? This goes back to the Puritans. Jonathan Edwards had this whole list of resolutions he would give. Um, and um, so, I mean, there's all kinds of this material. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we're accepted by God. We don't have a place to, uh, to um, earn our acceptance. Yet, at the same time, Paul says, put to death those things and, and put on other things. It's intention. How do we have that, uh, that, that action without the intention? So, Enough of that. We'll move on to D, discipleship. First, we get up from our table like uh, this tax collector and we leave the old life behind. That's the moment of intention. The tax collector getting up and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. But then we follow intention leads to discipleship. And just as we regularly need to renew our intentions, so Christian spiritual formation involves a lifetime of following. And when I say that, I want to say, one, Christian spiritual formation is interested in form. It's not just about um, what we believe. It's not just about how we feel. Those, those are important. It's also what form our life takes. The Sermon on the Mount was not just to give us some nice ideas about theories. Um, and, and, and I mean, there are some, um, you know, the, the really strict um, dispensationalists will argue that, um, that the Sermon on the Mount was just to show us the depth of our sin or you know, these sorts of things, or it was an era. Um, but I, I think Jesus was also modeling what could be possible through the work of the Spirit. So there is a, there is a model. Um, Christian spiritual formation is interested in form. There is a form that we are meant, and, and the Christ wants us to become a new people. That's, that's what it's all about. Now, the other interesting thing about discipleship is that, well, what part of our life does that involve? Well, guess what? It actually involves every part of our life so that we begin to learn to do the things Jesus would do, WWJD. It also means that we learn to think the way Jesus would think you know, in terms of eschatology, you know, what's going to happen in the end, not just a matter of a time frame, but hope. And then we move not only from thinking to feeling. You know, we want to feel for the broken the way Jesus feels for the broken. That's discipleship. That is discipleship, having our hearts conform to the heart of Jesus. Now, you can't label that in some nice, easy, 
You know, I mean, remember when I was in Campus Crusade for Christ in high school, you know, they called them the transferable concepts. Design for discipleship is the way that um, the navigators use the term. Well, guess what? It doesn't, I mean, I appreciate that. I appreciate transferable concepts. But it's not just a concept. If I am going to learn to have the heart of Christ, it has to be something that forms my heart. And so in order to be like Jesus, I need to be in the midst of the broken so that I can learn to have Christ's heart for the broken. Do you know what I mean? A concept is not going to work. It's just not going to be enough. So discipleship in, in, involves every bit of our lives. I remember in seminary, um, I started reading some of this um, contemplative literature, and it was really brand new to me, partly because um, uh, when I was young, they diagnosed me um, as hyperactive. That was the term they used back then. I'm sure they would have given me medicine back then, um, but they didn't. Um, instead, my mom just said, can't you sit still? Can't you sit still? And my teachers would tell me, can't you sit still? You know, um, this sort of thing. And, and so I had never sat still. And then I start reading all this literature when I'm in seminary on stillness and, and solitude and, you know, all this stuff and Thomas Merton and, you know, things like that. And I realized, I've never sat still in my life. What do you mean? You know, and so part of my discipleship for a year was simply sitting still on a couch for an hour every day. Prayer, not, it, it was optional. Who cares if I pray or not? All I need to do is sit on that couch still for an hour. That practice for a year changed my life. Did I have a charismatic experience? No, I had none. But that act of sitting still for a year enabled me to be aware of anything. Because I was always in the future, I was always everywhere else, my mind was everywhere but the present. Sitting on that couch enabled me, I mean, even just things like the room and how the couch felt and all these other weird things, you know, that are just so absolutely ordinary. But what was weird is that through that, I could finally be aware of God. Yeah. So it's just a powerful thing. And, and that was part of my discipleship. You get it? What does discipleship look like? For me, at that point in time, that's what discipleship looked like. And it was very, very powerful for me, sitting still on a couch for an hour every morning. Whoa. I mean, I, didn't, I never saw that in my design for discipleship outline. It, you know? So every aspect of our lives are vulnerable. But the other thing, well, we'll get to that. Optimism. This is a word that Jim and I introduced for this very article. We have not seen, okay, Evan, come on, optimism. Um, in, the, in the Coptic prayers, so anyway, Jim and I included this, we've not seen it in enough of the spiritual formation literature, and we want to really like champion optimism as being essential. And we see it in Paul, and we see it in the history of the church, and we need it now. Um, if you go through a Coptic religious service, um, the, in the Coptic prayers for the various hours throughout the day, it's called the Agpeya. You got, you got that word, Michael? 
Agapeya, A-G-P-E-Y-A. If you do the Agpeya, um, you'll pretty frequently read this following prayer. Let us give thanks to the beneficent and merciful God, the Father of our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. For he has covered us, helped us, guarded us, accepted us to himself, spared us, supported us, and has brought us to this hour. Now you say that prayer numerous times during the day in a Coptic environment. What does it do to your formation in Christ when you give that kind of thanksgiving again and again? And especially because to me, written prayers are not just written prayers. They're frameworks of meditation. So I say, okay, for he has covered us. Oh, yeah, I remember that. He has helped us. Oh, that over there. He has guarded us. You know, he has accepted us. Oh, I'm so grateful that you have accepted. You know what I mean? Just point after point after point. Just imagine what it feels like to pray this prayer with a full heart many times a day. Um, what might a habit of repeating this prayer do to our formation? And I, I just don't think, we, we don't think about gratitude and hope. Gratitude and hope. These are a foundational element of Christian spiritual formation. Um, I think it's a fruit of good doctrine, and I can go on and on about that. Um, you know, that's what salvation is. Christ, the Savior of the world. God, the model of excellence, the Holy Spirit, the one whom we delight within, source of life abundant. I mean, all of this stuff is here. Um, what this means with regard to Christian spiritual formation is that we gauge our expectations for maturity as communities or individuals. We gauge it not based on our own experience of conflicts or failures. Because we've all experienced some of that. But we, we base that um, uh, not by a myopic vision of, of sin, Satan, or society, but upon the truth of Scripture. We can change. I mean, there's lots of debates among the theologians about perfection, you know, is it the Wesleyan version or the Calvinist version, you know, all these different things. I don't care about those debates. The question is, can we change? And everybody agrees, yes. Christians can change for the better through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is a place of hope. Psychological research teaches us that human beings are influenced by negative input more than by positive input. Um, uh, in the, uh, John Gottman in his relationship studies talks about one to five ratios and when families are in conflict that it takes five positive to equal one negative in order to have a healthy family. And, and Sherry was just telling me this week she read in other kinds of things it takes even in really good relationships it's a 20 to one relation it's a 20 to one ratio but the, the, the positives are really small kinds of things. Um, and I told her her hair looked nice. Um, and so, but I mean, you get this idea that it really takes. Um, now, what does that mean? Here's, this is a soapbox, okay? You notice I'm pounding on the soapbox. Um, is it our liturgies, our, our devotional practices, we need 
to hear God's love for us. We need to hear that we are a part of creation. And yes, the creation is twisted, but we were made for good. God looked at human beings and said, it's very good. Yes, it's twisted, but God wants to restore that and God is restoring it. This is where we are heading. If we don't have gratitude and hope as the foundation of our Christian spiritual formation, we will aim at nothing and we will hit it. You see what I'm saying? We have got to have a reason for aiming somewhere. And if we are gonna form in community, this is overwhelming the case. I mean, we're all old enough. We've experienced some pain in our communities. I mean, we could do another chart of that, couldn't we? <laughs> That's another one. But we cannot live in the pain. We have to live in the truth that yes, we can change. We may not be able to reach perfection. I'm not gonna try and debate you know, that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is we can change. That's what, that's what Christian formation is about. Thus, our approach to Christian spiritual formation must affirm and reaffirm again and again the hope in Christ that, that sees us through to ever greater conformity with Christ. Um, okay, that brings us to the next one, means. Isn't it fun that these, these letters work so nicely? I mean, I, I, Jim, Jim is just a genius. Um, we, we were just, uh, we, uh, I mean, he's one of my, we were talking about our community. Jim is a really close person I share with. And he lives in Chicago and I live in Montrose. And we were on this phone going, yes, we've got it. This works. You know, we were just uh, really in, rejoicing in this moment together. An optimistic attitude is important, yet it cannot be the only ingredient in Christian spiritual formation. It's not enough simply to surrender ourselves in trust, simply letting go and letting God. Though I wanna, I mean, even saying that, I think there's a caveat I wanna make that for some people, in some periods of time, people who are really struggling with scruples or you know, like you're, you're really religious and stuff, I mean, for some of you in some periods of time, letting go and letting God is the most important thing you need to do. You know what I mean? So it's just not the same for everybody. So I don't wanna try and lay some trip um, uh, because it really does depend on the individual. But in general, means of grace are valuable. Um, uh, scripture, history, and common sense all teach us that God uses means of grace to communicate grace. And the means of grace are those relationships, those practices, those situations and such through which the Holy Spirit works to restore the image of Christ in individuals and communities. The means of grace are where we like find God, where God tends to touch us. Uh, Michael and I were talking yesterday about this one season in our San Francisco days where there was this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They called it the Toronto Blessing. And, and people would go to these meetings and, and some people would just get exceptionally touched and it was a deep thing in their life. And I actually experienced some pretty powerful stuff during that season. Some people did not get that much out of it. Um, and one of the gentlemen, um, I happened to be leading, um, he didn't get that much out of the meetings, but he wanted to do what's called the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola. And so during the same time, when these people over here were getting stuff out of 
these really crazy charismatic meetings, then this person over here was talking about the same kinds of like, I was in tears and God showed me these things in my life by doing the Ignatian exercises. And then at the same time, my wife, who was kind of labeled hard to receive and it was not a, it was not a good thing for her. And, um, and, and we had this conversation, well, Sherry, where do you, you know, where do you find God? Well, you know, ever since I was a Christian, you know, in my earlier years, um, I would go for walks um, out in the woods because she lived near uh, the borderline of, of the end of town where there was a big park and stuff. And so she would go on walks and, and realized that, oh, now that we live in Berkeley area, there weren't those, you know, you actually had to drive to get to the, um, to the common parks. And she started taking drives um, after that conversation. And, and she would come back home and give these t stories of these really deep things that God did in her while she was going on walks. Well, isn't that interesting? Walking, Ignatius of Loyola, and these crazy charismatic meetings. All of them means of grace. Do you see that? Means, yes, you, Dave. Can you get a little more into what was the commonality of each of those, though? I mean, not exactly the same stuff, but... There is no commonality in form. Okay. The commonality is the openness in the person and the presence of the Spirit working. That's what's there. You know... I receive from God, I, I have a confession to make. I receive from God reading technical philosophy books. <clears throat> it is actually, I mean, Charles Taylor's Secular Age was this incredible means of grace for me. It's just the way I am wired. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, and I think actually Sources of the Self was another, I mean, even, even more powerful for me in terms of like real. Both of, both of the books have been really meaningful to me. Um, so means of grace. Can you repeat your definition The means of grace are those relationships, practices, and situations and such through which the Holy Spirit works to restore the image of Christ in individuals and communities. You got all that, of course. <laughs> Michael's got it recorded. And that's beyond the classical sacraments, right? I think the classical sacraments, interesting enough, um, are there any Wesleyans here? Here we are in a Nazarene university, a seminary. Okay, Wesley distinguished what he called instituted means of grace and prudential means of grace. And the instituted means of grace were those that Christ instituted for us to do today. And the sacraments would be part of those instituted means of grace, along with the scripture reading itself and a couple of other things. Practice of prayer. Prudential means of grace, things like small group meetings, you know, things like that, are valuable and they're helpful, but they're much more individually dependent. They're not the, the main ones. Um, so um, that's... Um, actually, I have this in, the, uh, in my notes. Um, uh, some means of grace, such as scripture reading, prayer trials, Christian fellowship, and the celebration of the sacraments can be considered primary, basic to the Christian faith in scripture and tradition. Other means of grace, such as solitude, journeying, prayer, walking, or writing a rule of life, can be considered secondary, helpful to many, but not basic for all. Great. There we are. Okay, 
Um, I think it's enough of that. Boom, boom, boom. Then, guess what? Wise strategy. Wisdom is not only, it's not only the word that holds it all together, it's also the first you know, word we use. The trick is this. Christian spiritual formation is grounded in scripture, but how is scripture best heard by any given congregation? Christian spiritual formation is immersed in the story of Christian salvation. But which aspect of the ordo salutis or the, the plan of salvation needs emphasis in this person's Christian life? How are intention, discipleship, or optimism expressed most appropriately in this tradition? I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, when I was young, I remember someone saying, you need to be born, you need a second baptism. And here, let me take you here because you're not gonna grow, you're not gonna really achieve what you need unless you have this experience. And so it, there was this kind of, what's the word I wanna use? This assumption that this experience has to happen to you right now. Um, and it's kind of imposed, whether it be entire sanctification, infused contemplation, whatever it might be. Wisdom is what we need. While each of the ingredients provides its own unique contribution to formation, uh, intentionality, scripture, salvation, discipleship, optimism means, you know, those are all really good, but wisdom is the glue that holds it all together in practice. We desperately need wisdom. I have been teaching spiritual disciplines for, I guess, since... 83? So, I don't know, that's a few years. And what I have noticed is that either people hit the wall trying to do the right disciplines and they fail, or they do the right disciplines and they do it well, like me, and you turn into a Pharisee, um, or it just ends up getting caught up into this means and that means, and it's great, I love the means, but they've got to be put in a context of wisdom. Someone from this culture, um, centering prayer is going to be natural. Something from someone from that culture, it's gonna be, it's gonna be out loud praise. You know, that is what is the means of grace. And our personality, our culture, our stage of Christian growth. Um, you know, a, a beginning person in their faith is gonna need one thing, and a person who's been around for 30 years as a Christian is gonna need another. We've got to have wisdom. Thus, for Christian spiritual formation to be authentic formation, instead of just the imposing of some kind of standards, um, the precise blend of ingredients, which ingredient, must be applied with wise sensitivity, wise strategy. Wisdom recognizes the breadth of um, of God's salvation and the richness of the Holy Spirit meeting the church. There was a time, I don't know if you remember, Michael, um, we didn't talk about this yesterday. There was a time when we were uh, meeting as a staff um, and we were up at a retreat center up north of us. Um, uh, what's that, that retreat center that... Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. That we were meeting as a staff, it was during the Toronto Blessing, 
And we all met there and had a meeting. And I remember there was a prayer time because we were praying for, well, how do we help everybody receive? And what about the hard to receive people? You know, these things. And, and I remember at the beginning of the meeting, um, I had this sense of a chapel. There was this vision of a chapel. Um, and, and, it was, and it was dark. And it's like, how do we bring light? How do we bring the light to everybody in the room? And then we, we started talking and there were conversations and then we closed in prayer. And as we closed in prayer, um, after that, one, that first talking time, I saw it was not a chapel, but a, a cathedral. And it was a cathedral that had blinds just like this. And the blinds, they were, they were windows like this, you know what I mean, the, the kind of shape, and only they had blinds. And the blinds were all closed. And I went around in my imagination, you know, in this kind of vision I was having, I walked around one by one to each of the blinds and I undid them. I, I opened them up and each of the blinds was a different stained glass window. And the light shone through each of the stained glass windows differently. And, and shone light into this room. And it was this image for me of wisely listening to the people who, who in our congregation were struggling with receiving from the Holy Spirit during this season where most everybody was experiencing powerful things in this one way, but some weren't. And so I felt like part of my role was to listen and then open the right window so that the light would shine for them. Do you know what I mean? This was the image I, and then indeed, that was kind of the role I played a lot at the church during that season. Um, and, and so we've got to recognize the breadth of God's salvation. We've got to recognize the unique ministry of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives, and that is part of wisdom. It, it's part of, of being able to hear someone close enough to be able to say, I recognize the Holy Spirit in you when you garden. The Holy, I can see something of the presence of the Holy Spirit when you have that shovel in your hand. Um, It's exactly right. The phrase that I use, there is something very universal and there is something very individual. And not only individual, I'm also thinking of communities, not just individual human beings, if you know what I mean. Um, so um, the word I use is IRR, invitation, response, response. God invites all human beings. God invited through Abraham, God invited through um, Moses, God invited through uh, the prophets, God invited through Jesus Christ, God invites through the Holy Spirit. The primary emphasis in this is on God's invitation. We don't make anything happen. We respond to God's invitation. But God invites and invites us to respond. Okay, Abraham, you gonna move? You know, you gonna take that son and you gonna bring him up to the, uh, the mount? You know, hey, Noah, or Noah, Moses, um, you know, are you going to take these people? Here's the law, Israel. Are you going to do it? Here's where life is to be found. 
If you do this, you know, you're going to have life. Um, then, uh, then the prophets, God gives a warning through the prophets. You know, uh, Hosea, you know, are you going to return? You know, render your hearts, you know. These are, so there's invitation and then there's a response. And then God actually responds to our response. Um, and, that, and that's a whole other ballgame. But the point is, that's what's universal. Again and again, God is always inviting. I've done spiritual direction with um, philosophy students that were non-Christians. Um, and we have met together, and, and uh, they have had, uh, you know, it's like, I want to talk to you about my, and I, they know I'm a Christian, but they know more that I'm interested in spiritual things. I've taught world religions. And so people will want, and I'm telling you, you want a ministry to your, to your community, offer spiritual counseling or just spiritual listening. And, and I tell you that the Holy Spirit is working through and inviting non-believers. And they know that. They don't know what it means. They don't know how to follow it. But they will recognize the invitation of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's universal. What's, in, what's individual is how that invitation is perceived how the response is appropriate to each person, the tradition, the culture within which that can be navigated. I mean, all of that is very specific to a congregation, to an intentional community, to an individual person. So does that help answer the question? Yes, thank you. Okay. When I run, I feel this pleasure. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, exactly. What yeah. you say, You know, chariots of fire, when I run, I feel oh, his yeah. pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah. Um, and actually, that may be, um, so we recognize the breadth of salvation. We recognize that human beings are different. And that gives me um, the process of appropriating formation in light of our contexts and our aims. And by the way, I say aims because aim is going to be different. You know, again, this difference thing. Because of the breadth of salvation, because of the difference of human beings, um, our aim changes in time. When I was sitting on the couch for an hour a day, the aim of my Christian spiritual formation at that point was I knew I needed to learn this idea of stillness and being aware of God, being aware of God's presence. I, it was, I was clueless. And it, it didn't, that wasn't the aim for my entire life, but for that season, that was the proximate aim. Did you see what I mean? The ultimate aim is the fullness of the gospel, but I can't do that in, you know, in any given time. So that fullness of the gospel has to come down for me right now. The next appropriate step is just learning how to be aware of God. And that means sitting still. You see what I mean? See how that works? You've got a full aim of the gospel that reaches down to each one of us in something appropriate at some point in time. Do spiritual disciplines play a part? Of course. You know, does optimism play a part? Of course. Is it based on scripture? Yes. But how that's appropriated by me at this particular point of time, that's a matter of wisdom. And I, I had a spiritual director. I mean, that was like the first spiritual director I ever had. You know, she was wise enough to... Um, look at me and say, well, maybe, maybe it's, it might help you just to sit still if you're struggling with this. Just sit still. You know, wisdom. 
She had wisdom. You know, Lord, give us this wisdom. And what I think, the process of appropriating spiritual formation in light of our contexts and aims requires, requires experimentation. Now, I'll go one step further. You know how I spell experimentation? Write this down. P L A Y. I mean it. How do you build that Lego building that looks like the Millennium Falcon? Well, there are kids, but then there's just building it and then going, no, that doesn't work, you know, and then taking the Legos and putting them back again, you know, and this sort of thing. I mean, um, that's how I built forts when I was a kid, you know, again and again, is that we've got to learn how to play in God's presence. I mean, I really seriously mean this. God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And if we aren't willing to fail a little bit, I mean, this is my total belief um, about Christian community. Is it, I mean, there's these phrases that God is looking for another Benedict um, and, and we need another Benedict. I don't believe we need another Benedict in society today. I mean, what we need today in society are people who are out there experimenting with intentional communities that fall apart and then you go, oh, that's what we did wrong. <laughs> ah, let's, let's try again, you know? <laughs> We desperately need that. This is the era that we are in. We need to play and to have optimism. And, and you may, it may be painful a number of times, but believe me, generations later are going to cry in gratitude for what you've done. I'm serious. I, I really am. Sorry. Um, it is a big deal. We need to play with our faith because that is how we, we do it in God's presence. And maybe the presence of a spiritual director. I mean, for me, for Evan, it's these three things. Writing down my intentions. You know, okay, this is really where I think God and I are going right now. So I write them down. And then I play with them. Okay, for the next three months, I am going to see if I can avoid any single-use plastic. And I'm going to fast from, uh, you know, for Lent, I'm going to fast from single-use plastic. Well, is that something I want to take on permanently or not? I don't know, but I'm going to play with it for Lent just for fun. And, and so it's not some kind of a heavy do or don't thing. Do you, do you see what I mean? And I may find that, well, you know, certain areas, I can avoid plastic a lot. When you travel, when you're on an airplane... I realized that when they were passing the uh, stuff um, down the aisle, like there's almost nothing you can say yes to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's all, I mean, the, yeah, everything. I mean, the coffee, coffee was the only thing you could, because they're out of a metal container into a paper coffee cup. But the lid, you know, if they put a lid on it, then you're back to plastic again. Anyway, so... Um, so you get that, but it's playing, it's exploring, it's experimenting, and it's from there that you learn 
this is the appropriate next step of growth for me. So that's number three, the appropriate next step? You said you did three things, right? Oh, okay, I wrote, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I wrote, I experimented, and I reported back with another person. The relationship, and it doesn't have to be this really heavy-handed accountability thing, but frankly, Sherry knows, I mean, Sherry is one of those people, Sherry knows when I'm fooling myself. Um, you know, and she can say, you know, is really, do you, is that the one you want to try? You know, okay, go ahead, you know. Um, and, and so there's this sense of other people know me at times better than I do myself. And if I do this thing in dialogue with others, experience, you know, intention, write it down, play with it, and then have someone to talk about it, or some ones who really know me well enough. They can, they can celebrate with me, they can encourage me, they can call me on my mistakes. Um, you know, that for me, it's those three elements are just really, really valuable for me. Um, others, it may be a little bit different, but yeah. Comments or questions? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, Agpea. Mm -hmm. um, and if you said that prayer over and over again each day, how it would change. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in the Catholic Church and went to Catholic schools for 12 years. Was just uh, drenched and littered liturgical services. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when I had a true salvation uh, experience at age 30, truly came to Christ, I ran from liturgy. But I later heard a Catholic priest defending liturgy, uh, kind of, kind of looking in the mirror of positive thinking. You know, we, you know all the positive mm -hmm. thinking literature. You think positive is going to change your life. You know, mm -hmm. change your thinking. Mm -hmm. But this priest says, but by actions can change your thinking as well. Yes. So, so we do this stuff over and over every day, just like morning prayer, saying hey, and it will change your thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a... That's why I can come to St. Aidan's now and embrace literature. Right, right. Um, uh, there's a guy named Jamie Smith, J.K.A. Smith, who's written a book. I mean, he's written a bunch of books. But, um, well, and there's this three-volume on cultural liturgies, but it's summarized very nicely in a smaller book called You Are What You Love. Um, and in that book, um, you have this sense of how liturgy shows you... And, and again, liturgy may be... Uh, there's uh, lots of different kinds of liturgy. Um, charismatic churches have liturgy too, so it, um, it's just a different style of liturgy. But anyway, liturgy portrays for us what we love. And, and I mean, football games do this, malls do this, you know, but also uh, church services do that. They manifest, they demonstrate for us the very most important values in our life. And we shape ourselves into them. Yeah, yeah. So play. Um, good. Um, then I think that's enough for the wisdom thing. Any other comments and or questions about that? It's 12. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then let's move on 
to, to the closing of this, I want to say um, that, um, and we can, we can just close the computer. Yeah. Okay. We'll see what happens. Um, I want to say a few things about formation and community now that we've got the whole formation side of things. Do we, where's your handout? Frameworks, wisdom. Okay, let me see. Is there a final page? Yes, there is. There is a fourth page. Formation and community. I want to say a couple things you know, really quick in this outline. <clears throat> First, there is formation by, and that's where we're going to get right into this point, um, which we've covered. Formation by community. We are formed by the community so that when I am a part of, say, a Pentecostal charismatic community, um, my involvement in that worship service, in that liturgy, by the way, I had a, um, a good friend in my doctoral program. I was doing my work on discernment. He was doing his work on liturgy and the spirituality of liturgy. He actually um, did his on um, charismatic Pentecostal services. And he took ritual studies and, and analyzed charismatic Pentecostal worship according to ritual studies framework. And we talk, and in his work he talks about, and we've talked together, about how in a charismatic Pentecostal environment, certain aspects of the truth of the gospel are highlighted um, so that the um, presence of God um, is, is something that is communicated. You can expect and assume the presence of God in the gathered community. The way you uh, assume and expect the presence of God in a Roman Catholic service during the um, Eucharist. Um, or you know, there's different ways that we assume these sorts of things. So um, formation by community, the way we celebrate um, on Sunday communicates, it, it, it forms us. We are formed by the community through liturgy. We are formed by the community when we break up into small groups. I mean, even today, um, I don't know about you, but I actually was really um, shaped in a neat kind of way by hearing Michael talk about his own community, both here that he's been at for a long time and his relationship with his fellow pastors in the diocese. Um, that shapes me. I'm going to go home with that uh, image in my head. Um, and so when we break up into small groups as a part of a congregation, not only are we formed by how we do liturgy and, and the big thing, we're also formed by our interactions with, you, with each other um, in various, whether they be education groups or service groups or um, you know, various kinds of things. Um, I don't know about your church, but the Altar Guild is a, a whole separate um, a, a niche community, and they actually used to really like one another and things in our congregation. They, there's a, a neat kind of support that goes on within the Altar um, Guild. Um, another thing that I think we are formed by, um, and I go into length in the, in the Green Book, is getting along. Um, I talk about hospitality, and I also talk about getting along. Learning to get along, to navigate conflict, um, has to become part of the culture of our forming in community. Uh, pastors have not done, I mean, I, I think pastors tend to be conflict avoidant because they just like to keep the peace as much as they can. 
And so unfortunately, rather than modeling working through conflict, conflict sits on the edges until it explodes. You know what I mean? <clears throat> we desperately, if we want to become a, 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 um, a light to the nations, if we want to become um, a, a salt in the earth, a, a model of Christian um, beauty to the world today, we have got to learn how to get along. And I mean that in a sense of really learning how to walk through conflict to resolution, how to manage um, differences of all kinds to something that's healthier than those differences beforehand. And that is done by being formed as a community. Um, I live in a congregation where um, we have different political views. Um, and these days, um, that's not always an easy thing to navigate. Um, but we've had conversations among certain groups of people where we try to learn how to listen to one another lovingly and really listen so that we gain from the other person and not just support our own political viewpoints. You know what I mean? So um, that's being formed by a community. We are also formed in a community. Um, a, a community is our context. Um, we, um, you know, I've got, uh, in my Fuller students, uh, one of my requirements among Fuller students is that they, when I teach the class on worship, um, it's not my requirement, it's Fuller's requirement, they want every student who takes IS 501, the practices of worship, to attend and write a ethnographic report, a, a kind of res, a descriptive kind of report of the event, of attending a church that's very different from what you're used to. Um, it's required. So I've got, um, I've got people who have been Hispanic Pentecostals, and they um, come into Fuller, and then the, for the first time in their life, they're attending a, a white Orthodox church. Um, I have got um, folks, I mean, I've got, I, I, um, yeah, just so many different things. Um, uh, people from Baptist backgrounds that are attending Roman Catholic churches, people from actually more, uh, there's one woman who is from a progressive Episcopal um, background, and she went to a, a mega church, first time she'd ever attended a mega church in her life. Um, with it was, I mean, it was the lights, and she described it. It was really, really fun to, to listen to. Um, but it's, what, what makes them unique is that we all have a context that we are formed in. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm, this is what I grew up as. This is my context. Our community is a context. And so because of that, other things are a little bit more shaking, a little bit more surprising. Um, and if we are going to be formed in community, we have to recognize what we have as a context to work with. When I train spiritual directors, I make sure that they are um, at least familiar with a variety of Christian traditions because they will be directing people from different traditions. And I need to know, you are a Southern Baptist. I'm gonna put you in touch with reading the Bible, and that's the first thing I'm gonna have you do, is to learn how to read the Bible meditatively and, and practically for your own life. Because that's the context you grew up in, and I wanna honor that. Maybe in time, 
you know, you're going to need to expand and grow. And that when, when I see God leading you to expand, I will, I will honor that. But for right now, do you see what I mean? We've got to learn context. We are formed in community. But we're also formed in community in the sense, I mean, one of Jesus' most characteristic, I just think more these days, what is characteristic about Jesus is welcome. All the way through the New Testament, every gospel, Jesus is welcoming the unwelcome. Whether it's a woman, whether it's a leper, whether it's a tax collector, whether it's a prostitute, I mean, Jesus, or, or a, a, Samaritan, you know, a Samaritan, you know, a race, creed, I mean, just everything. Jesus broke those boundaries, and he welcomed. Um, that, that was characteristic of Jesus, and I don't wanna, yeah, good. Jesus, it's absolutely characteristic of Jesus, welcome. And we need, as communities, to learn how to welcome. We are formed in community. When we are welcomed, we are formed. We're formed by the community as we are welcomed in the community. Do you see that? And so what are the skills we need to, be order, be, to become a welcoming community? Then, finally, <clears throat> formation as community. Um, what I want to say is that, um, I, 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 don't, I mean, the whole spiritual formation movement, um, there was a season where it was Jesus and me. Um, you know, it's just this interior kind of thing, and it's about my relationship with Jesus, and it's uh, tranquil and nice. And, and I, I agree with that. I mean, it's really good. I needed my time of sitting on a, on a, on a couch. Um, it was desperate. Um, but if we leave it there, we're missing something of what the gospel is, because most of the letters of Paul were not written to individuals. They were written to communities as communities. They were written to the church at Corinth, not just to the leaders of Corinth, because the church of Corinth had a mind. The church of Corinth had a, a way of living together. The church of Corinth had its own issues it needed to deal with, just as individuals have issues we need to deal with. St. Aidan's, as a community, has its own issues. And they're not just Michael's issues. They're the issues of the interaction of the group as a whole. And that comes out of your background. It comes out of your own histories. It comes out of your own expectations of what you hope for as a congregation. It comes out of the pains you had in previous congregations. All of that gets dumped in the lap, not just, well, Michael will feel it, of course, but it gets dumped in the lap of you as a community yourselves. Do you know what I mean? And, and you've got to face that. It's part of your own identity. I attend an Anglican church right now. The, uh, the people in the Anglican church um, used to be part of, at least in the history six years ago, um, most of the people, well, we've had people join later, but that's another story. But I mean, there was a, once upon a time, there was an Episcopal church. And then 
Then people started an Anglican church, and then 90% of the people from the Episcopal church joined the Anglican church. So that's how it worked. But that event six years ago shapes the identity, very deeply shapes the identity of the congregation. Um, and you've got to realize, for better and for worse, I mean, we gave up the building you know, that we had built, I mean, all these different things. But for better and for worse, that event shapes the identity of this congregation as a community. And the pastor that comes in, I mean, when Father Monday um, came to be our pastor, he had to recognize, this is the church I am, I am now coming in to be the pastor of. And if he didn't, um, he, if he wasn't conscious, and like intimately conscious of that event, he wouldn't be able to pastor the congregation. You see what I mean? It's, it's an essential part of that whole thing. We have identities as congregations. We have identities as networks, as home. Now let me get to those, you know, those four things. As households, as congregations, as intentional communities, as networks. We can be formed in each of those frameworks. It will look different. It will require different means. The Holy Spirit invites differently. And in all those things we had up there regarding wisdom, that will be different. But communities can be formed just like individuals can be formed. And that's on Michael's heart, on mind all the time. How do I shape the character, the life, the identity, the spiritual health of the community? Right? Say an amen, amen please. Amen. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. That's what I needed. Okay. Any questions, comments thus far? Formed by community, formed in community, formed as community. Wow. This is good. It must be getting close to 1230. Um, so in the time that remains, let's take, um, can we open this back up again? What will happen? Okay, I wondered if, I thought maybe it would, oh no, like, I thought maybe you'd get the previous screen up. Yeah, but it disconnects from here. Oh, I see. Well, I just thought we'd have that word wisdom up again. Might be fun. Um, as we close, think, is there a case study? Formation and community. You've learned what formation is by this notion of wisdom. We've learned about community, sharing, um, sharing ideas, sharing life together. You know of the various conflicts you've had over the years. If you were to give us a case study in formation in community, what would it look like? What kind of a case study could we talk about? What kind of a question? Hmm, thank you. Is there a situation that you have experienced or are experienced where this comes into play? Um, yeah, I, I saw this happen. How could we really, you know, I like, 
I just got hired as the worship pastor of this congregation. And my job is supposed to help the congregation grow in worship. How am I going to do that? Because they're a pretty diverse group. Do I just do blended worship? You know, what do I do? See, that's, that was, that's a case study. Do you have other situations that you might like us to play with in the time we have? What would, what would formation and community look like if? I see that hand. No, it, it, you, your, your hand didn't raise, but your eyes did. <laughs> Say your name again. There's, there's tons of questions there. Yeah, and I could play with all of the questions, but what I want to go back to is this. Um, because out of it, I mean, you've talked about different disciplines that we've done. Um, the, the, you know, what's our, uh, you know, do, how much do we share in Scripture spirit? What are our common values? Have we you know, understood how to make decisions together? Um, you know, disciples, those, those things are there. One, I, wanna, I, I also want to stress optimism. You can change. You can change as a group. You can change. Now, the other thing I want to say is that um, the phrase I used again and again through this conversation is next appropriate step. How do we determine our next appropriate step? Do we need right now to sit down and, and crank out a rule of life? Might be valuable. By the way, when I went to Egypt and talked to this, uh, to the, the monastery of St. Anthony's, um, one of the things I did was beg them for their rule of life because I thought, oh my goodness, this is the oldest monastic expression in Christian history. And I, know, I don't ever remember seeing their rule of life. Um, I want a copy, and here I am right at the location. And um, what I learned, they don't have one. Well, they don't have one, or they don't have one written down. Yeah, right. That's an interesting question to leave open. 
Um, oh, and the next year I went, I, I dealt with that much, I, or the next, yeah, I went the next year, year and a half later, and went back and talked more fully. What, um, what, we, what you have is customs, this is what we do, and you also have a very intense relationship between uh, mentors and followers, Abbas and, and, uh, and that. And so the combination of custom, uh, uh, 1,500 years of history, and this really close relationship between um, the mentor and a follower where they discern the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, there was at one point where it's like, come on, you guys are and then the, And the abbot through this interpreter says, no, we just follow the Holy Spirit. And then I find out they were actually right. So anyway, the point is, what is the next appropriate step? Is this the time to crank out some kind of rule? Or would that actually prevent community from taking place? Maybe at this stage of the game, and again, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. Please understand this. The next appropriate step might be, uh, we need to, need to play together. Can we get out the you know, uh, settlers of Catan? And, and, and spend a bunch of evenings uh, you know, playing games and getting to know one another all over again. Um, and so the shared practices are something as mundane as making dinner and playing games. And from then, you build a rule of life. Um, or um, maybe the next appropriate step is bringing in a consultant who can help guide you um, through conflicts and healings that, you know, that have taken place, and so where you can, and I've, I've served that function, I went to San Francisco, and there was a death of someone, um, and it caused a real, uh, there was just a difficulty, in it, and so they brought me in as a, as a consultant, and I helped this intentional community kind of navigate that stage of life for them, and there's a number of different groups, the Shalom Mission community um, does this, and others that can help intentional communities in their, um, what's the word I want to use? Um, group process. Um, so those sorts of things, um, so what is wise strategy? How do we, how do we take the, um, intentionality is important. You wanna say, yes, we, we intend on moving forward. And that's what I hear you saying. Um, you're actually acknowledging your intention. We're not break, breaking this up right now. We wanna see, is there another step? Um, but we don't know which scriptures, what part of salvation are we really all about? Are we all about contemplation? Are we about mission? Are we just about living together? And there's lots of tensions in intentional communities about those very issues. Um, but they can be worked through. They really can. Does, does that help in a small way? So just what is the next appropriate step? That's, that's the question you, you wanna ask right now. And you may even disagree about that much. But if you can, if you can sit in a circle and, and kind of come to a semi-consensus, um, then you can take a step forward. Something else. That was a good, that was a good case study, a tough one. Yeah, Sergio. Okay. I, I got the context, but it was the, how do you lead a Bible study? Ah. Background, because I come from a Presbyterian background, so. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, that's a lovely question. Um, what the, the um, oh yeah, thank you so much, yeah. How do you lead a Bible study 
in a post-charismatic Anglican environment with orthodox sentiments um, with your own Presbyterian background. Is that our response? Okay, okay. Um, what's interesting is that you're going to want to be, there's two things that you wanna, it's a Bible study, so we're about gathering around scripture, and we are about trying to discover what the scripture says. Now, the interesting thing you've got around you is multiple contexts. And this charismatic over here understands script and, and actually uh, her, interprets scripture, you know, the hermeneutic, is going to be a different kind of framework. God speaks through scripture now in this kind of a way. This person over here sees grammatico-historical exegesis, and this is this framework that you come by, and, and you, um, you uh, interpret this phrase and this phrase, and from there, then there's a logical application that happens out of that. And then, um, let's see, orthodox, you know, then scripture is interpreted in light of the history of the church. And so you have this great tradition. And so um, you don't presume to have your own tradition, and nor is it any really um, grammatico-historical. It's not that kind of a thing like N.T. Wright might do. Um, but rather, you're looking at the broad tradition of the church and how this is so you're back to the fathers and you're looking at commentaries um, from Chrysostom and something like that. So now we've got three separate hermeneutics in one Bible study. How do you do that? You listen to one another. You listen to one another. Because, frankly, all of those hermeneutics are part of how the Bible interprets the Bible. So what you have to do is you have to gather around and set your own arrogance down. I say this from experience. <laughs> and you have to be able to lead these people to come at the passage in such a way where they hear one another and they hear the passage through one another so that they can speak the word of God for one another through the passage. Does that make sense? So it's the incarnation of God through Christ, incarnated in the scripture, and then incarnated through the breadth of the church into each of our own lives. And the breadth of the church happens to be represented in this small Bible study. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one more question. Uh, so, you sit and you listen to each other. You leave it there, or do you say, well, <laughs> that's not the way I see it? That depends on, um, again, that's a, that's a lovely question because it's a question of wisdom. Depending on my relationship with this group, I may feel like, no, I don't know these people well enough. I want to let them speak. The relationship is more important than me. Being right, uh, Evan Howard has this real love for being right, and I know that weakness inside of me, and so I say, no, right now, I'm gonna back off. Or, no, we've been together six years, they know me really well, um, and, I, and they trust me, and so I have earned the right 
to give my opinion in a really clear way in this group. Do you want to close, Michael? Sure. Father, we thank you that our heart for community and relationship stems from you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that in that shared life that you give us, that you are building your church, your people, your new, your new and renewed community, based on love, the love of the Father and the grace of Jesus and the communion of the Holy Spirit. May the peace of God, which surpasses your understanding, guard your heart and mind in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ. And may the love of the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you now and forever. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Evan. Give you this.